and welcome to the Jane of All Trades podcast, a little show about a lot of things. I'm your host, Felicia York, and today I share with you the conversation I had with my friend, Winnie Lamore, founder of HCLI, the Haitian Creole Language Institute of New York. And I'm so excited to share with you this conversation where Winnie and I discuss what she does, why she does it, and we really get into the nitty gritty of the importance of language and how it doesn't necessarily happen in a vacuum. It is also entangled in how we view people and places. Take a listen. joining us, Winnie, today. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about HCLI, what it stands for, and what you do? Sure. So HCLI stands for the Haitian Creole Language Institute of New York, which is basically a lot of words to say that there is a dedicated space in New York City um, for the Haitian Creole language. And we offer people, basically anyone who's interested, an opportunity to learn about Haitian Creole in a very structured way, in a very innovative way, and in a way that honestly hasn't been done before because of the socio-political history of the language. Why did you spell Creole with a C and not a K in each Um, color? So I, um, I get that question a lot, and I see that you're diving right into the meat of the controversy of Haitian Creole. So when I'm speaking in Haitian Creole, um, I do adhere to the proper spelling of words. So in the Haitian Creole language, when we're making a hard K sound, we use the letter K. So in Creole, the word is spelled K-R-E-Y-O with an accent L. And then when I'm speaking in English, I always use the English word for the language spoken by the Haitian people called Haitian Creole. And in English, it is spelled with a C, so C-R-E-O-L-E. And I also do have a Creole version of the Institute's name. So in in English, it's the Haitian Creole Language Institute. But in Creole, it's the Institute Creole Haitien Nalaku, New York. So there is a Creole version of the English name of the Institute. That sounds so beautiful in Creole. Girl, you already know. <laughs> I'm like, dang, I can't make my mouth do that. You can if you take a class with us. Okay. Yep. Okay, so thank you for explaining that. I'm sorry if you get that question um, a million times. I know. It's an interesting question. It's something that people know is a thing, so they're curious about why I make that choice. Okay. I know that I know you as a lover of languages and mm-hmm. as a person that emigrated from here from Haiti, did you have the kind of familiar uh pressure of becoming a doctor or a lawyer or any of those professions? How did how did Mama Shetty take you going into linguistics? Oh man, Mama Shetty did not take it very well. <laughs> I remember my freshman year of college when I decided to change from being a bio major to a linguistics major, um, and I had to really, like, (laughs) give myself pep talk before I went to tell my parents what the deal was. Um, But like many other children in the 
in the diaspora community and, you know, as children of immigrant parents, um, the goal is always, like, do better than us, you know. And mm-hmm. the, the society that we're raised in teaches us that there are only certain p- professions that are, quote, unquote, good, you know. Work that nine to five, go to school, make that money, retire, and then when you retire, you're good. But the truth is, I grew up in a multilingual home, and I learned English as a second language. So I was always really curious about language. So when I took, um, in freshman year, when I took a linguistics course, just to um, just out of curiosity, really, because it fulfills a, a requirement in the arts and science school, um, I... I got something, like, awakened in me, (laughs) something that was like, wait a minute, this is really interesting and fun, and I actually liked it, and it was more accessible for me because the linguistics department at the school I went to was really small, so I was able to get to know my professors, I was able to get to know other people in the major, and really that's what I was looking for, an opportunity to learn in a space where I, I actually felt seen. Wow, that's so powerful. I mean, we know now that representation matters, but... Yeah, that's another level. Yeah. So what languages do you speak? You speak Creole? Yeah, I I speak Creole, Spanish, a little bit of English, and um, (laughs) (laughs) some French. I don't actively say I speak French, although I can get away with, with a decent conversation in French, but... I've never formally studied it, so it's not, like, on my resume or anything. And I know that, you know, you have your own thing going on with the Haitian language. Are you actively trying to learn any other languages? Do you have time for that? (laughs) I know. That's what I was about to say. I was about to say, learning a language takes so much time. That's a question that my students ask me a lot is, you know, what, what will their fluency be like at the end of taking a course with me? And my answer is always, you know, it depends on what kind of language learner you are. And the fact is, becoming a native speaker of a language takes, like, years and years and years. Like, think about what it means for us to be native English speakers. We literally heard it every day of our lives. <laughs> every, Everywhere, everybody is speaking English. So I would love to learn another language. Um, you know, I'm married to someone who's from Ghana, and his family speaks non-English languages that I don't know. And I would love to learn one of those. I've always been interested in Portuguese, and I tried to learn that one time. Um, but the truth is it takes time that I don't have right now. Um, mm-hmm. And because I'm older, learning language as an adult is a very different experience than learning a, a language as a child. So mm-hmm. for now, I'm just I'm okay with learning like different phrases in different languages, and I'm I'm always ready to learn just a little bit about every language. That's good. I mean, that's what we're about here. Is Jane of all trades is a little yeah. bit about a lot of things. Yeah, so that's actually perfect. So going back to your courses, what does that entail? So if you sign up for a course, how long is it, and what do you actually do? Ooh, now we get into the nitty gritty. Um, so at, at HCLI, we offer full-length courses in Haitian Creole, and what that means is that you get to sit down in a classroom space and have a teacher, have an instructor teach you very formal Creole. And I, I 
I've organized it in this way on purpose because there's a particular stereotype around the Haitian Creole language. A lot of Haitian people themselves, although they speak Haitian Creole, are not taught to read and write in Haitian Creole, so there's a gap in their literacy. Um, and a lot of people have ideas about the language spoken by the Haitian people that are really negative. Like, some mm -hmm. people don't even know that there's a Haitian Creole alphabet, which always blows my mind because, like, we're in the year 2020. <laughs> there are so right. few languages in the world that don't have a written system. So it makes me... <clears throat> I'm, it makes me so mad sometimes to know some of the ideas that people have, and that was partially what fueled my desire to create a de dedicated space for Haitian Creole. So when you come to the classroom, it's like a real classroom space. You sit, there's a board, there's a teacher, there's a dictionary, there's a textbook. I mean, it's a chance to learn in a way that a lot of people are are not afforded an opportunity to do. Um, but we don't just we don't just sit in the classroom. We do use the larger New York City space as our classroom too. So because there's a large Haitian population here, we, we're also participating in cultural events, going to art exhibits, um, going to talks, and we have an opportunity to engage with the Haitian community here in a way that helps to bolster the language learning part. That's great. So because learning a language is not just Nope. Sitting in front of a person, it's an immersive nope. experience. Yep. At yep. HDLI. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. So, Thank I, you. I never really even thought about uh, an alphabet, but that's really interesting. Like, why wouldn't you have a, a Creole alphabet? Yeah, it's funny. Sense. It's funny. It's funny some of the things that people <clears throat> think about Haitian Creole. Like, for example, you asked why I, I spell the word. Creole with a C and not with a K, and I explain the English Creole divide. But a lot of people will say that, well, Creole is a really easy language to learn because it's very phonetic. Um, mm -hmm. And that means that the way you say it is the way you spell it. But there's another major world language that's highly phonetic, and no one ever makes that critique about it, and that language is Spanish. Like, there's very, very little variation in spelling in Spanish. If you tell me a Spanish word, or if you tell a native Spanish speaker a Spanish word, they'll be able to spell it using the phonetic rules that they know about the language. And it's the same with Haitian Creole. But how come Haitians are critiqued for that, but people who speak Spanish are not? So I think that having a space like HCLI presses people to explore ideas not just about language learning, but ideas about language learning of a black language and what right. that means. Yeah, what that means to be learning a language spoken by black people because it comes along with like all this baggage that sometimes you don't even think about and you you don't even have a space to, to unpack, you know. And that's what we allow people to do or what we help people to do at HCLI. Right, get rid of some of that internalized racism. <laughs> Yo, so much. The other day one of my students was telling me about, well, we were talking about a decolonization and how decolonization theories um, apply to some of the uh, native language um, uh, movements happening in Haiti. And we concluded at the end of class that, you know, decolonization equals healing, <laughs> period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was that was the, conclu the conclusive statement that we came up with. And 
that's what we do at the Institute is we allow people to unpack those internalized ideas that they think are their own, but actually are things that they've absorbed over time at being part of the society that's very racist. Excuse me if this is a silly question. No, no. Um, but just been listening to you speak and thinking about the word Creole, it's kind of like patwa, where it means like it's a a blend of different things. Would Haitian language be called something different um, besides Creole? Mm, that's a good question. That has like a very long answer, but <laughs> I'm okay. going to give you an abridged version. And I'm also okay. going to give you some scaffolding first so that you can better um, understand the answer. So okay. the word Creole itself comes from a very old Portuguese word that means criollo. And mm-hmm. during um, the times of colonization, the people who were, the people of European heritage who were born on the islands were called criollo. So they were still European, but different. So from mm-hmm. jump, the word creole always meant like, you part of us, but you, you ain't really us. Right. And so over time, as those people um, had children with, people on the island, like Native people, enslaved African people, their children started being called Creoles. And now, currently, the definition of Creole, people generally take to mean, like, mixed. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you black, but you not quite black. Or you speak Spanish, but not like us. So a lot of people now are making the argument that we actually should not call our language Creole, that we should call it Haitian or just Haitian mm. to, re- to really further reclaim the Haitian identity, especially given the history of Haiti as the first free black republic on the side of the Atlantic. So right. that's the that's the context in which we're living right now. Like there's this really big debate going on on what to call the language. But the truth of the matter is <laughs> that Creole okay. is definitely not a patois. Um, okay. Even what they speak in Jamaica is not a patois, even though they themselves call it a patois. So I think mm-hmm. that's what's most important is the people get to decide what the language is called. Right. So outside of this context of, like, you know, academic debates and history of the word, et cetera, for now... Where we are living, the Haitian people who speak the Haitian language call their language Creole. And they're not using it in this, like, othering way. And also, the Haitian Creole language is actually much less of a, quote-unquote, mixed language than, say, English. The Haitian Creole vocabulary, 90% of it comes from French. So when you compare that to English, where... 30% 30% comes from this, uh, 40% comes from There's mad words in the English language that accounts for so many inconsistencies in how things are spelled. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. in Creole, 90% of our words come from French vocabulary. There's, and there's actually very little mix, quote-unquote mixing in the Haitian Creole language. So if we're talking about which languages are Creoles, English is more of a Creole than, than Creole is. But it's actually... Right a very complicated answer because the truth is, at the end of the day, the people get to decide collectively what their language is called. 
Amen. Well, I'm sorry Girl. I didn't to step into like a whole <laughs> academic landmine, but I mean, it was just interesting. No, it's uh, a real thing. Yeah, but I, I really love your answer. Thank you for clearing that up for me. Thank you for asking. Um, so, I mean, you did mention the attitudes towards patient people and in this larger landscape of where we live, um, do you feel like that, that attitude that has, has shifted in this MAGA post-9-11 world, or has it remained the same? Has it worsened? The post-9-11 world. Mm. The post-9-11 world is a very funny place, especially for black people. Right. Um, I, I don't think it's changed um, <clears throat> in any significant way. In the same way that, for example, larger racist racist ideas haven't changed. Like, we're not actually living in a post-racial society because we had a black president, you know. So in that that regard, (laughs) I don't think that much has changed. There are still many international economic policies that are in place that negatively affect Haiti. There are ways in which um, other countries are involved in Haitian politics um, that affect the people directly. Like, there's still a lot of ways in which people treat Haiti that they've been doing since day one. Um, mm. But I do like to talk about the ways in which language has helped the Haitian people better express themselves and the way that they've used tools like the Internet and social media to really create more of a cohesiveness around what Haitian identity is and what Haitian culture looks like and what the Haitian people do. Like, when I was younger, people used to tease us about, you know, practicing black magic. But now you can, like, follow a Haitian voodoo priestess on Instagram and really learn about, like, what happens in voodoo. So I think that while... People might still have very skewed ideas about who the Haitian people are. I think that the Haitian people now have better tools in their hands to show us. And I'm saying us and them as if, like, because I I do consider myself bicultural, so I go back and forth between us and them, but Mm -hmm. they have more tools in in hand to show non-Haitian people what Haitian people are really about. And I think that's been really important in helping shift those ideas. But in terms of, like, on a larger scale, I don't think that much has changed in that regard. I don't think – this is going to sound very pessimistic, but I just don't think that in our lifetimes it will shift, Mm -hmm. Um, not in a way that is truly tangibly – I don't know, positive. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. as you were talking, I was just thinking about, you know, it's Black History Month now when we're recording this, and I'm thinking about the Haitian people that I learned about in mm-hmm. school, and I'm kind of drawing a blank. Like, was Toussaint the Overture? Um, yep. Haitian? Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. really it. And I remember him specifically because of um, him, you know, going to war on an elephant. And that was like mm. a very visual thing that I remember from mm-hmm, 10, mm-hmm. nine, ten years old. So 
I mean, if we have this thing where we're, as black Americans, we're like, we're not here to teach you. You have so many tools accessible to you. You have a computer yep. in your phone. So yep. if you truly want to learn something, you just go out there and teach yourself. Yep. But as your friend, I feel like you've taught me a lot about Haitian mm-hmm. culture, um, just through osmosis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, I learned so much, like, about Zoe life and Kompa and, you yes. know, yes. yeah. But do you feel like most people should just have more multicultural friends? Is that what we do? We totally I mean, in? it would help, you know. I think it would help, but I just, uh, I, I don't even know really what would help because people have access to so much information now in a way that we didn't have even when we were younger and people right. are still doing ignorant things. Like, for example, if you're if you're looking up Toussaint Louverture on YouTube, one of the most watched videos that comes up is this white man that's comparing Toussaint Louverture as like the Black Napoleon. But yo, right. check this out: Toussaint was <laughs> fighting Napoleon. He was fighting. <laughs> Toussaint was fighting Napoleon. Like he was actively trying to get Napoleon out of Fran- out of Haiti. Mm-hmm. So like, for me, that, like, blows my mind. Like, how do you sit and record this entire video? And at the end of it, you're like, by the way, um, this is how we should remember Toussaint is in comparison to this, this white man who he was actually fighting. <laughs> it wasn't like they called him, like, the black Genghis Khan or, like, the, mm-hmm. the black... They actually called him the black Napoleon, who was the guy he was actively in war against. <laughs> so I think that is just a symptom of white supremacy. Not to, like, get all, like, <laughs> black Panther <laughs> about it, but a lot of how we view ourselves is always through the white lens. Yeah. So I think a lot of it as people of color is just really distancing ourselves from that because it's always like so-and-so is the black so-and-so. Like yep. Viola Davis is the black male street. Like, yep. no, <laughs> Viola Davis yep. is Viola Davis, not period. the period. 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 So, period. Uh, okay. I know. I feel you. <laughs> Even Haitian food. Even Haitian food gets categorized in a white lens. Like someone was talking about Haitian patties and um, not Haitian patties. They were talking about oh, they were talking about um, Haitian cremas, which is like you know our version of a milky alcoholic drink, which every culture has. You know, mm-hmm. but people call it like you know Haitian eggnog, and I'm like, mm-hmm. first of all, eggnog is nasty. <laughs> Yes, let's start there. Um, but, you know, jokes aside, like, why can't we just describe it as what it is? And then you can, for yourself, you know, make whatever associations you want, but I shouldn't have to use what is, quote, unquote, the more common imagery to help you understand, like, what my my thing is. Like, I can use my words to tell you that Haitian Cremas is a milky drink that has Haitian rum in it. That's it. Now you have an image in your mind of what it is. Right. Because when you said that, I was like, Coquito. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah, it's like low-hanging fruit. What you can just kind of think of it. I mean, it goes into just how we are as a people and how, you know, the prevailing society 
if the majority is white, which really is not, <laughs> but if we're living in a society that tells you that the majority is white, that's just kind of where we go from things. But also I just think that a lot of people are very much wrapped up into what they're doing, who they are, and don't yep. really expand outside of themselves. Yes. So, yes. you know, just be more self-aware. I agree. I agree. But being self-aware is really hard because it, it requires you to, like, really look at the mirror. And when you're actually looking at yourself, and you are growing, the growth means you found something about you that you don't like that you want to change. And a lot of people don't want to confront that. Mm. You're going deep. We're going deep. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) I'm going to say that because I did have a couple questions of, you know, you started this language institute um, seven years ago, almost seven Mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. How... Did you ever have imposter syndrome? Like, I'm just this girl from Brooklyn. Uh, how can I have my own language institute? That sounds very grandiose. You know, so grandiose, man. Sagittarians, <laughs> man. <laughs> Actually, I didn't set out to found a Haitian Creole language institute. I started teaching Haitian Creole um, in really small group settings in Brooklyn. And I had a, a whole... Um, uh, roster of students, and I was like, you know what, let me pitch this to a language school because uh, I have students, I have an interest, I have a curriculum. Maybe they'd like to, you know, pay me to, to do this. And so I went around and I pitched this idea to different language schools, and they were all like, mm, we don't think anyone would be interested in this. Even though mm-hmm. I was like, look at all my students. I even had, like, students call a couple language schools and, like, ask, hey, are you offering Haitian Creole? And they're like, no, just to sort of, like, you know, to, like, do a little strategizing, you know, on the the back end. (laughs) (laughs) There's still nothing. And then I was like, you know what? F all these people. Like, why should I have to, like, go around asking for um, handouts when I can Mm -hmm. just do for myself? And so that's when... um, you know, when when you make a decision, the universe just lines things up for you. I happened yeah. to meet a student who was a lawyer who was working on community development, and he helped me get um, a part of a program where I had, like, a whole team of corporate lawyers that helped me put all my stuff together, like my articles of organization, my filings, and everything. So my institute is, like, a legit corporate structure with mm-hmm. all my bylines and all that in order. And then one of my sister friends helped me put together my website. Like, mad stuff came together to help me form the institute. But I had imposter syndrome from jump. Like, immediately I was like, my first thought wasn't let me create my own space. My first thought was like, okay, let me go to these other spaces and see if they'll have me. Because who am I to do my own, who am I to do my own thing? But I've learned that, Everyone literally starts somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like no one, no one is born knowing and doing. And in doing my work with the institute, I've learned firsthand how important it is to just do. Because when you mm-hmm. just do, you're able to demonstrate that you've done this, and that in itself, that in itself is an expertise. 
And so while I still fight in imposter syndrome because, like, for example, I don't have my PhD, but people still email me and refer to me as Dr. Lamore. Ooh. I feel groggy like the universe. <laughs> what are you telling me? <laughs> hey, now. Because not only are people making assumptions about my work, the expectation is that you must have a PhD if you're able to do this work. So I, I, I fight imposter syndrome all the time, but I know that I can't let that be the thing that drives the work that I do. Otherwise, then I would just be stuck not doing, and the work is in the doing. Wow, that is a word. Like, that kind of made me emotional. Girl. Like, seriously, because I feel like, for me personally, I've tried so many different things, and sometimes they stick, sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. But we all have that moment where it's just like, wait, you know, I'm not a big yep. name, I'm not this, yep. I'm not that. But like you said, you just got to do it. And yep. I really do believe in what you said. Is like when you make a decision, the universe comes to meet you. So. Super fast. That gives me two. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about it, because you are Ivy League educated. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I always be forgetting that, though. Girl, you know I will never let you forget. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, I mean, you have um, a degree in linguistics from Cornell. Yes, I do. Okay. So, and then... What else? I think you have a master's. I have a master's. I do have a master's. I have a master's in urban affairs, um, and the focus was on um, community work. So I like to tell people that I I I have a master's master's in city living. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but basically, what it means is like I, you know, kind of learned what it what it means to create stuff within an urban space. That's what that means. And so I took my work with language and fused that with my community um, my community building work at the time because that's what I was doing while I was doing my master's. That was the work I was doing while I was doing my master's. And then in doing the work with the Institute, it has turned into basically community building because we don't just offer courses at the Institute. We offer, like, workshops. We work with schools, we partner with nonprofits. Like, it's not just a classroom space. Our students are literally involved in the community. That's amazing because a lot of people, okay, I shouldn't say a lot of people, many people like to take. So they might take your class and then think that they're going to go to Haiti and then maybe exploit the people with, mm-hmm. you know, by knowing the language. Very colonialistic about it, but you're not about that. You you really vet, like, people's intentions in order to build the community, not take from it, not admirable. I mean, I try. I mean, I've had students who do come to me, and they're very clear with me that the reason why they want to learn Haitian Creole is to go to Haiti and make some money and da-da-da, but I do try my best to let spirit guide me because... In those cases, then I'm like, I I can't be the one to teach you Haitian Creole. <laughs> I'm like, Haitian the the Haitian Creole language is for the Haitian people, first of all. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, we do live in a very global world. Like, I can't I can't lay claim to the Haitian Creole language and not allow other people access to it. But right. 
because of the history of the language, there's so much coded in the language. I I can't give away all of that coded stuff because it's what literally kept us alive, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't share everything with everyone, but I do make sure to um, put myself in a position where only people who are genuinely interested and authentically involved in community are the ones that are taking my classes. And I don't I don't mean to say like I'm out here just like willy nilly like, nope, you can't do this, nope, you can't do this. like literally anyone can sign up for my courses, but I do get to know my students. Like I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not from a distance teaching people. Like I do talk to my students. I get to know who they are. And if I feel like there's a there's room for them to shift beyond where they are and using Creole as a tool to do that, I'm always um, I'm always willing to try. But I have I have actually told a few students over the years I can no longer teach you Haitian Creole. Mm. I think that's really important. Like to me, what that sounds like as a Black American and seeing that Black American culture has been used not for the betterment of us per se, but to make money for other people to come and do the same thing that we're doing and we're disparaged for it and they're praised for it. But I feel like there should be some gatekeeping into Mm -hmm. the most sacred parts of our culture because it is sacred and it is, you know, cherished. And other people may not see it that way and may not even care. Yep, yep. It's true. It's true. People literally... And I'm I'm talking about people with uh, colonial mentality. Even the most woke of those people can't help but be colonial in their in their mindset. Like mm-hmm. last time I went to a Haitian concert with this really dope um, Haitian woman, and she was like, she was sharing this like soulful work and like. Bearing her soul, like we've been to concerts like that. Like she was showing us who she is, mm-hmm. and there were a few white people in the front row. And mm-hmm. I kept thinking, like, if you're really about supporting the Haitian community, those front row seats should be saved for Haitian people. They mm-hmm. should. You should physically you put your body not centered. Like mm-hmm. your face should not be the face that this woman who's like bearing her soul should be seeing first thing as she's out here being vulnerable with us. And I was thinking to myself, like, even in those moments, and I was discussing this later on in the evening with one of my students, even in those moments where, you know, those people have come, they've paid the money for the ticket, they're there, they're present, even then they they censor themselves and they don't even realize it. Who knows if that Mm -hmm. thought crossed their minds, you know? But it's stuff like that that I think, I I want to be able to help people through at the institute, but not all people, because I I'm literally only one person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean we see that a lot in in many things that you know certain mm-hmm. people censor themselves in the story, even in, in how it's told, yeah. and even in the much larger lens of what history is and. And all that stuff. So I think it's yep. very complicated and it's very entangled in a lot of different things. So it's just like if you are a person in a space that is not primarily your own, mm-hmm. take a moment to step back and see how your actions will be perceived by the yep. larger group. Yep. Thanks. Don't, 
Yeah, like, don't be an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) That's basically what it boils down to. (laughs) Yeah. So, okay. So, I mean, you have made some exciting changes, and it's been really great to watch um, ACLI grow from its infancy to where it is now. Um, The most recent project was, I'm going to butcher it. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. uh, (laughs) Is that in Kimon? That's yes. Moon. <laughs> yes. Ooh, okay, okay, okay. So, um, you know, there's a wonderful proverb and it says it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken adults. Mm. Is that kind of the inspiration behind Jaden Timun? Yes. Or, I mean it was it was about time that there was a language immersion program for children. So Jaden Timun is a, a Haitian Creole language immersion program for children ages 0 to 12, which I co-founded with this really dynamic early Darnell Champagne. And she also is a bicultural young Haitian woman like myself. And she has three children who she is raising um trilingual so she has not just like I know she has not just the training as an educator um, but also like real life experience with her own kids um, with teaching them um, a language that's not their native language so um, she and I found this Jiraiden Timun in 2018, and we knew, <laughs> we knew that it was about time to start hearing the kinds, to stop hearing the kinds of stories I tend to hear when people come to me. So I teach primarily adults, and by the time Haitian people come to me, they're on some like, well, you know, my parents didn't teach me when I was a kid, and I wish they had, and blah, blah, blah. It's the same story over and over again. So we wanted to give people an opportunity to stop creating stories and to create a new narrative where kids can say they went to Saturday Creole school the same way when mm-hmm. I went to college and I met Chinese American kids who went to Chinese school or my Jewish friends who go to Hebrew school like I want mm-hmm. I want Haitian children in the diaspora to have the same kinds of opportunities that you find in many other immigrant groups to maintain their culture. Um, but I also, because we don't only have Haitian children in that program, I also want people to get comfortable with the idea of Creole as a functional language and as an accessible language. So anyone who's interested, like even people who are not of Haitian heritage can come and learn Haitian Creole. The same way that parents think to themselves, oh, I should put my kids in Chinese school, but mm-hmm. they are not of Chinese heritage, but they know the value in learning another language. And I want Creole to be at that level as well. Wow. That's, I got to stop saying wow. <laughs> Girl, the work is so important. The work is so important, you know. Because I think of... Two things, like, you know, I had a next-door neighbor that my parents would let me stay with during the summer, the Mm -hmm. summer that I wasn't down south, Mm -hmm. and she was, I want to say, Puerto Rican or Dominican. She was Latinx, and Mm -hmm. she spoke to us in Spanish, and even though I didn't speak Spanish, I understood her, what she was saying, Mm -hmm. and that made the Spanish language so much more accessible to me, um, and I picked it up so much faster when I was in school. Yeah, but it's also when you don't use it, you lose it. 
So yep. you have to make opportunities to keep the keep it going, keep it fresh in your mind. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely so, right. I think that's all the questions that I have. I think we covered so many things. Oh, thank you. It's been amazing. Thank um, you. Any last words you want to share? Any anything else? Um, I. I don't have anything else on my heart, but I, you know, I do want to encourage people to ask as many questions as they can, especially when it comes to Haiti. It's easy to sort of swallow the little media bites that they give you, but Haiti is so much more than what you see on the TV, and it's so much more than the stereotypes that are floating around. So I'm hoping that in this conversation that we share with the world that people are at least curious and wanting mm-hmm. to question what they hear about Haiti and will seek out more information on their own. Right, because Haiti has beautiful beaches and mountains. So beautiful. And, yeah, so we need to take so a trip. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. Stay ready. <laughs> you already know. You already know. Thank you so much, Felicia. No, thank you. Oh, I do have one last question. I forgot. Um, so if you want to expand past, the sock passe, if that's the yeah. only thing that you know, what are some, like, phrases that you can just give us really quickly? Okay, so, oh, you can say alo and nawepita. Um, um, that's a good one to know. But there's actually one phrase you need to know in Haitian Creole, and that phrase is this. Okay. Sisa. Sisa. That's it. And you can say sisa in any kind of, like, um, intonation, like a question mark, sisa, mm-hmm. or, like, an affirmation. Someone gives you some good food, and you're like, mm, sisa. <laughs> <laughs> or some, or um, some guy tries to holler, and you're not feeling it, and you're trying to be, you know, real incredulous about it, like, all right, sisa. <laughs> <laughs> Right. It basically uh, means that's it. That's what that means. So you can use that really in many situations. I like it. So let's end it like this. Thank you so much, Winnie. Thank Sisa. you. Thank you. This that's it. <laughs> to thank Winnie Lamore of HCLI, Haitian Creole Language Institute of New York, for her time, candor, and wit. Check her out on all social platforms at Creole NYC. That's Creole with a K. R-E-Y-O-L. And if you are in the New York City area, check out her workshops. She has amazing tea parties and conversation groups. The last one was on February 28th. Stay tuned for the next one. She's doing amazing, amazing work. And thank you for listening to Jane of All Shades podcast. I'm your host, Felicia York. You can find me on Instagram at Jane of All Trades Pod, on Twitter at Jane Trades Pod. And if you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to be featured on the show, email me at Jane of All Trades Pod at gmail.com. Please rate, subscribe, and comment wherever you listen to podcasts. Till next time.